This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello and welcome to the podcast and Happy New Year 2023. I cannot believe it. We are starting our fifth year podcasting here on Soaring the Sky and we're going to go over the best of 2022 and actually have someone with me here today. Hi, Chuck. Hey, how, how, <laughs> how are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm doing really amazing. Uh, it, it was a great year, the 2022. Um, really great podcasts to hear from you and from many other guests that that you invited so uh, i'm really thrilled to chat about it with you oh yes i'm excited to talk about it it was such a fun year um and a big thank you going out to all the guest hosts and of course all the guests of 2022 but yeah we're gonna kind of go down but the list here but i asked you to pick your favorites for the year so i'm i'm really curious what you came up with <laughs> well, um, every every episode has its pros, so it was really a tough one. Uh, but I made my top six list, uh, mostly with uh, people that um, I also uh, got got in touch with uh, during the 2022. But uh, really, the first one that um, that touched me and I really enjoyed it was the very first episode of 2022, the mid-air collisions and uh, water landings, the short stories that you shared. Uh, that was really interesting one. Oh, that's that's uh, that's awesome because, you know, I was on the fence on that one. I, I, when I was putting the episode together, I was like, OK, we're going to go with a bunch of short stories. I don't, don't know how it's going to go. But, yeah, it ended up being actually not the most downloaded, but it came in as number two. So that's a, uh, don't want to give up uh, <laughs> the list here before we talk about <laughs> it. But yeah, that actually came in number two. So that, that's interesting. What were some of your other favorites? Uh, well, the other favorite one was with Tobias Barth, uh, Behind the Lens of a Glider Pilot, because um, I was so lucky that uh, I could work with uh, Tobias as I was modeling for him during the wave camp. So uh, when I was uh, when I was actually uh, listening to it, I I didn't even know that I will get in touch with him later on the year, during the year. So this was pretty interesting one because I heard how it goes before uh, I was actually involved. So uh, this was really interesting one, and Toby does a really great work, and it's great that he actually spoke about it because uh, it's not usual to uh, be. Um, like air-to-air -air, uh, photographer and he has many gliding stories to share so um, yes this was an inter another interesting one well now I have to take a break and ask you about that because I'm really curious so how, how did that happen and what did you do in the air there with Toby well, actually, Toby, Toby reached me via Instagram. Uh, so lucky that we have an Instagram because you can meet a lot of people uh, all around the globe that are touched with the same love uh, for gliding. And uh, he actually told me that um, he was going to go for a wave camp in Czech Republic uh, in Yesenike Mountains. And uh, he asked me if um, there were any interesting gliders um, to to do a photo shoot with. 
And I was lucky enough that uh, in September, I retrained for ASG 29. And uh, so I reached him that I will be flying the ASG. And if he actually wants to do the photo shoot with me, or if, if he is really in, because I couldn't believe that uh, something like that could, could happen to me. And it, and it's anyhow, and he somehow, uh, yeah, I was really surprised. And yeah, he was in. And so, um, yeah, during the wave camp, um, we, we chatted uh, a bit about it and, uh, we just like, like, let it be, if we can meet there, we will meet and we will do the photo shoot and two days, uh, in a row, uh, we weren't lucky enough to, to, um, actually meet up there because it's really hard to meet someone, uh, in the wave. Uh, if it works uh, to pretty reasonable heights. So once I met Toby uh, like one hour before the sunset and he was two kilometers above me, so it wasn't really that oh, wow. easy. <laughs> and <Wow>. uh, yeah, <laughs> one day, yeah, but uh, one day it, it went through. So uh, we reached each, each other on the wave frequency and um, yeah, we were just doing the turns uh, in a wave and uh toby got all his arm with with the camera out of the window freezing oh, for 15 man. minutes before he actually made the the shoes that was worth doing something uh, or making something wow. so um yeah uh he he once once we were done uh toby uh got the arm back in the canopy and he just said oh and now my hand is frozen Oh, so, <laughs> so yeah, he he really is a pretty big enthusiast. Speaking about the photo shooting, because putting the whole the whole arm uh, out of the window uh, from the canopy and do the photo shoot for like the whole day, because I wasn't the only one. He was doing basically just the photo shooting during the wave camp. And uh, yeah, so I hope that Toby is okay. <laughs> but wow. we have pretty, pretty amazing photos uh, for the memory. So it was an and amazing can, experience. Did you share some of those on social media if people want to check that out? I shared, I shared one uh, okay. at the moment, but I have, I have a few more that I would love to share because all the photos that we did were amazing and Actually, I wanted to pick one for for my wall to to print it, but it's really hard to choose only one. Oh so yeah, he has some amazing shots. Yeah, all all the photos he shared with me uh, from our photo shoot were amazing, and as I saw other photos from Toby, um, uh, he did with uh, others. Oh my God, really amazing ones. Yeah, his his work is is amazing. All right, we're going to jump back to the list here. I'm curious to, to hear some of your other favorites. And then I'm going to get into the most downloaded episodes for 2022 here. Well, another one I pretty sure enjoyed was uh, cross-country soaring in the French Alps with Christopher Fleming because um, he must be an enthusiast to, to move to the French Alps just to, just to enjoy more of gliding. Right. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I feel him. <laughs> uh, so this was another episode I really loved. I agree with that one, yeah. Any other favorites? 
Well, another one with pretty interesting title was uh, Area 51, UFOs and Potato Guns with Jake McDaniel. Firstly, because I searched something about flying in the Las Vegas Valley. Right. So it was pretty interesting to hear, uh, to actually hear about it. So uh, this was another one I pretty enjoyed. And it made me kind of think that I need to uh, visit California in my life at least once. And oh, uh, yeah, definitely, absolutely. Absolutely, you have to do that. Yeah, okay, yeah, I know. <laughs> Already in the <laughs> list. So <laughs> good, <laughs> no good. No worry. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. It's, it's, I, of course, talked about this before, but I did have the privilege of flying out there over the San Gabriel Mountains there in the desert, the high desert uh, east of LA. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. Definitely have to do that. Well, okay. It's definitely something else. <laughs> yes, it is. It's an amazing place to fly. So I'm going to get into the most downloaded episodes of 2022 here real quick. And then I'm going to give you the most, the most uh, liked episode on social media. So number 10, I have Ian Brubaker and sailplanes and hang gliders that came in. Uh, Amelia, that was a really cool episode. Had a lot of fun chatting with Amelia. She came in at number nine. And number eight, Behind the Lens, speaking of Toby, Behind the Lens of a Glider Pilot. That was with Toby Barth. And that was a super fun episode. Uh, number seven, Cross Country Across the Country with Gordon Bettinger. Gordon, I hope I pronounced your last name there correctly. That came in at number seven. Number six, A Soaring Safari. And this was a fun one with Bruno Vassell and Dan Robel. Guest hosted, of course, by Clemens Chipak. And Clemens, we're always grateful to have him as a guest host here on the podcast. You said you were following that one actually on Facebook, right? A lot yeah. of people were. Yeah, well, I think that a lot of people actually follow this um, um, like a trip because um, it was something new. Uh, of course, we have Euroglide that you travel throughout uh, Europe, but this was something, it was really something else. They they made it uh, quite interesting with uh, all those adventures they had. So this was this was really enjoyable. It was, it was, was really awesome. We actually planned something similar with a uh, few, uh, few of my friends. Uh, we just stay calm and we want to do it um, all across Czech Republic and Slovakia. So hopefully we can make it. But uh, we can uh, or we, we want to uh, take it adventurously as uh, as the guys did with the Soaring right. Safari. Well, we, we are looking forward to hearing about that in the future here. Hopefully. <laughs> you have a lot of research to do. and Definitely. Gonna, a lot of planning. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the the one with Bruno Vassal and Dan Robel we're just talking about, that actually was the most like got the most likes on social media. So. Mm -hmm. I can believe that. <laughs> and number five, a cross-country uh, cross soaring in the Alps. Chris Fleming, that was a lot of fun doing that episode, mm -hmm. talking to him. And number four, Project AKX, of course, the Flying Wing. We talked to Dominic about that one. And number three, the Soaring Kings of YouTube, Bruno Vassal and Stefan Longer. I have to say this was probably my favorite episode of 2022, um, getting Bruno and Stefan together. Of course, the, the kings of YouTube, they had most most downloads of anyone else in the Soaring community. Um, Definitely. I think I mean, they, they do quite a lot for the gliding community, speaking about 
all the videos they share Absolutely. Uh, because each of the video is so enjoyable you can actually learn from it somehow and uh yeah i think that they do quite a lot for the sewing community and speaking about that i always remember uh matt wright um aka Bellica uh, from youtube because yes. he did so many so many enjoyable videos um blue sky <laughs> And yeah. Uh, yeah, so they they quite try to follow um, follow the gliding adventures, and yes, it's so amazing that they do what they do. Absolutely, reaching millions of people that normally wouldn't probably even pay attention to what was going on in the gliding world. So, who knows how many glider pilots out there actually got started because of Stefan or Bruno and Matt? Yeah, definitely. I was Number quite surprised how, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, go ahead. You're quite surprised. What? Uh, well, I'm quite surprised uh, how big influence uh, the videos have because uh, recently I spoke with a few uh, starting glider pilots uh, in Czech Republic and they were like, oh my God, uh, there are so many people sharing their adventures on social media, YouTube, Instagram, mostly the Instagram. And uh, they are actually willing to do more um, and to gain more uh, as they see it. So it always works when you show somebody how amazing it, it is. Uh, they are willing to do anything to experience that too. So I absolutely. think that the videos work so well. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. one. Number two, this one surprised me, but then you said it was one of yours one of your favorites, and um, that was the short stories. Yeah, the mid-air so collisions. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Crash landings and mid-air collisions, short stories came in at number two. And the number one most downloaded episode, are you ready? Oh, thrilled. Drum roll. <laughs> That's right, drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best I can do with my drums. <laughs> water landing an interview with david crowder guest host of course zach yamauchi and we greatly appreciate him being a guest host here on the podcast that was the most downloaded episode of 2022 well i'm not really that surprised about this one because uh it's always great to hear some some of those experiences that luckily you don't really have to uh experience yourself yeah, yeah. So, really. um, yeah, it's it's always nice to hear the thoughts that that um, comes to the mind when you have to face something, some some something like this or some situation similar to this. So, um, yeah, this was quite an enjoyable uh, episode as well. I enjoyed that too. Yeah, and I want to thank David for sharing that story because you know that's not an easy one to do. But yeah. he definitely wanted to share it so others could learn from it. So thanks to David for that. Yeah, thank you very much for that because um, it's it's not really easy to share the difficult moments from gliding, and um, it's always really hard to um, kind of settle all those thoughts that uh, you went through yourself and emotions, of course. So yeah, it's really it's really great that he was that strong to to share it and that we can learn actually from from it. Absolutely, I can't imagine what was going through his head. That's just mm, it's amazing. But thankfully, he's he's with us and he was able to share his story. And like I said, a lot of people learn from it. 
So, Barbara, what we're going to do now is we're going to play some audio from each and every one of these episodes here. And, mm -hmm. of course, if anyone hasn't heard any of these episodes, go back and take a listen. There's so much, so much great soaring content here. And all these guest pilots have, you know, given us their time, including you, and told their stories and shared their adventures. And that's what makes the podcast here. And, of course, if there's anyone out there that wants to share their adventures or they have a friend that has an amazing story they want to share, um, definitely contact us here at Soaring the Sky. Many of my pictures are taken in place where there are no lifts at the time of the photo. For example, at, at sunrise or sunset or, or over the, the open sea. And at the moment, the glider releases a tow rope. There are about... Um, ah, 10 minutes left uh, for all the photos depending on the on the reached uh, altitude and the distance to the to the landing point or the safety field and the, the clock counts down and <laughs> creates for me a very high uh, stress level um, often there is also a high noise level <laughs> it's, a, it's an open window uh, sometimes i fly as a, as a co-pilot with the uh, disassembled door um, and my half upper body is hanging out of the plane in the wind, blindly operating the camera with uh, thick gloves is uh, simply a part of the job. And uh, there is simply uh, no time to search for, for the right camera settings. If you had to choose one single moment, one single picture as an epitaph and a crowning achievement of your career, which would it be? Uh, oh, <laughs> again, what a what a tough question. <laughs> I think uh, I think is that always considers images uh, that are the more recent are my best uh, images. So maybe because I'm still very emotionally um, attached to the planning of the image and the effort behind it. Um, but highlights, uh, yeah, have have a few. So uh, let me pick up two, please, <laughs> not only one. The first was was a planned photo flight over in a nature reserve with the brand new uh, Stemme S12. So for this, I had arranged a meet uh, of, of the Stemme factory pilot in Pokeshof, south of Rostock uh, on, the, on the Baltic Sea. It is the northeastern part of, of Germany. And I myself flew uh, with Stennis in Cessna um, uh, 172, which uh, with a retractable landing gear. So it's an hour and a half to this decision airfield. And the weather was, was only very moderate. Um, and the destination airfield, we had to land directly because the weather absolutely did not allow another minute in the air. Um, so the pressure on me was particularly high since this time no glider pilot colleague from my own club flew uh, the photo model, uh, but a company was behind it uh, which sent not only the factory pilot, but also their newest flagship uh, to me. Um, yeah, so the weather was uh, like the first still very uh, questionable um, but improved in uh, quite quite good as as predicted and i had been in planning the days uh, for about half a year uh, that made me additionally <laughs> nervous uh, and after the, the stemme finally landed on the airfield 
um, the making uh, marketing boss of uh, Stemme was uh, the co-pilot. So uh, now the pressure was <laughs> was even higher on me. And it, we made uh, a very detailed briefing and I had one eye on the clock because um, the time was, 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 was running for the, for the photos. Um, and then um, a short time later, uh, together we had arranged uh, over the island Dars. Since it was the first time I photographed out of the, the open window of the Tejna, I was very surprised about uh, the wind and the gusts that also affected uh, the camera. But the biggest challenge was actually uh, my pilot could not see the Stämme, uh, which was flying next to us uh, without an engine. So I had to re more or less remote control my, my pilot at the same time and tell him uh, whether he should climb or think at the same time, at the same position as the pilot of the Stämme, of course, uh, shoot. And I, of course, shoot actually together the, the, the photo. Um, we restarted the engine of this Stämme uh, in total three times to um, regain altitude and flew along the really great looking coast of the Baltic Sea to get a different view of the landscape again and again. So at the end, uh, there were really unique pictures in the box and in the camera, of course. And we landed not only this one, landed not only in the, the photo calendar, but also in the calendar of the, the company uh, Stemme. So I was, uh, yes, I was a bit proud of it. And the second flight um, was not less exciting uh, for me. I always want to have a beautiful landscape in background of my pictures. This is in Northern Germany, partly not that easy because it looks apart from the coast of the North Sea and the Baltic Sea in the interior relatively uniform. So uh, to, to say monotonously. Here, uh, sunrise and sunset offer themselves because the landscapes um, is then completely different uh, in colors and the light draws attentionally to completely different things than during the day. After I have uh, photographed uh, some, some uh, sunsets in the, the recent years, I wanted to, to photograph at sunrise to, to know um, whether the lights uh, moods is perhaps even better. So I then tried to choose a suitable day for the, for the morning haze that occurs uh, on, on our region in autumn by means of a good, good weather forecast. Um, the great thing is that this haze is stationary from the, for the ground and there is no wind blowing uh, or wind blowing um, and it's only a few meter thick um, for the, yeah, for the selected Today I asked my colleague Torben if he would like to go uh, do a sunrise flies with the brand new Minilac uh, with the front electrical uh, sustainer. And, and he knows my photos and was immediately on board. Uh, yeah, I drove to the, to the airfield uh, well before sunrise and pushed the motor, club motor glider out of the hangar and um, stored my, my, my photo equipment um, in, the, in the cockpit. Yeah, approximately 15 minutes before sunrise, I took off to meet um, the Minilac with, uh, with the electric motor in the, in the front in the, the neighborhood airfield at exactly the right uh, moment. Yeah, the exciting thing about this 
that only uh, after takeoff and with the onset of the, the dawn, um, you can tell whether the day is worth or not because it's still uh, dark just bef uh, beforehand. And this makes the sunset compared to the sunrise uh, many times more exciting to photograph. Well, what I can say, I had uh, interpreted the weather uh, maps correctly. <laughs> and in addition, there was uh, some luck, of course. The morning haze was uh, unbelievably great to look at. And it's almost hard for me to find the words for this. And uh, yeah, due to the FES drive, we had had no stress this time um, after he released uh, the tow rope. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. I'm Tom Cousins, and I'm really glad to be able to uh, discuss uh, the uh, AKX glider with... Dominic Pepe, who is the project manager at uh, uh, Akaflik Karlsruhe in Germany. And so we have all kinds of things to talk about here. It's going to be a fascinating uh, discovery of a, of a glider that I find amazing. I, with my ba background in uh, aeronautical engineering and uh, model aviation and full-size aviation, uh, I've, the, uh, the view of the, uh, of the AKX is amazing. So uh, welcome, Dominic. Thanks so much, Tom. Really glad to be here. Oh, super, super. So tell me, first of all, or tell us, actually, uh, what, what is an Akaflik? Um, so yeah, Akaflik, I mean, name already sounds, sounds a little strange. It's, it's a German. <laughs> it's, uh, it stands short for Akademische Fliegergruppe, which translates to Academic Flight Club. And there are a couple of those in Germany, 10 to be precise. And so on one part, they're a normal uh, like gliding club, but they're also a student club. So they're totally comprised of students. Who are, you know, who are keen to to learn how to fly, but who are also keen to get their hands dirty and, you know, get the the whole theory of of flying and gliding and and building planes. Um, so our motto is kind of like uh, researching, building, and flying sailplanes. So we do the whole thing from the ground up, and we have this, you could call it like like a cycle of uh, researching concepts, then building them, uh, taking them up in the air, flying them and seeing what works, what doesn't, iterating and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of trial and error and it's a great starting off point if you're interested in aviation and gliding. And I, I personally think it's, it's, it's really awesome because there are so many freedoms. It allows you to do so much stuff and, and you can experiment without any risks. So yeah, that's pretty much what, what Akaflik is about. <laughs> Uh huh. So it's attached to. It's actually attached to a university in Germany. Yeah, sort of. It's it's not like an official huh. part of the of the university, but we are a recognized student club. Most Akafleeks, or at least we do, we get the we get a building from the university, which is very nice of them. 
Um, yes. And yeah, we, we cooperate with, uh, with many faculties and, and stuff like that. But yeah, we're, we're still, we're completely independent of the university itself. So we can do whatever we want. Oh, that's marvelous. Now, so, so, but uh, because it is actually, as you say, it's a kind of an independent function of a university. Do, do uh, the members, the students actually obtain school credit for their participation? No, we don't, unfortunately. Uh-huh. <laughs> it would be nice if we did. <laughs> but uh, there's, yeah, there's many, uh, there's still many opportunities where, where it kind of, you know, harmonizes, I'd say, where maybe you can, can write a thesis for your studies and have that be on an Akaflik topic. But other than that, we don't get any credit, no. I see. Okay. What is a nice thing then is that the students uh, more are are interested just because they really want to do this as opposed to filling in a, a checking off a box or something like that. And yeah, that's excellent. Um, so so tell us um, briefly about you yourself as it relates to flying and how you became involved in the, the AKX project. Um, all right. So I started off 2012 with gliding. Um, that was in the normal club and. Got my license 2015. Well, and actually in, in 2015 as well, I, I had an internship at Champert in Germany. Ah. And that was that was the first time I actually heard about AKX. Wow. <laughs> so okay. I was, uh, so I, already before I started my studies, I was I was like very keen to get into it and, and looking forward to it. And yeah, 2015, I moved to Karlsruhe, started uh, mechanical engineering. And yeah, even before my first day at, at uni, I... Uh, I visited the the Akafleek workshop and yeah, I was hooked from there. And then, you know, over time, responsibilities grow and stuff. And now, I don't know, for maybe maybe two years or so, or two years back, that's when I uh, took over as project manager. Hey everybody, this is Bruno Vassal IV, and I am today's guest host for Soaring the Sky podcast. And today I am here with Stefan. Is it Langer? Uh, how do you Langer. how do you pronounce your last name? Langer. Langer. Oh, yeah, love it. That's love totally it. fine. <laughs> American accent. Langer. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm awesome. here with I'm here with Stefan, and really excited to first of all meet you. It's really nice to meet you. Yeah. And, first time uh, that we meet each other. Yes. Yes. So so I think we've you know communicated a couple of times, just commenting on each other's uh, videos or things, uh, but. Uh, yeah, really nice to meet you and looking forward to uh, to getting to know you better. So uh, first of all, uh, Stefan, I, I notice a little bit of an accent. So are you from Chicago, New York? Where, where, where are you from? I'm from Germany and I'm trying to speak English <laughs> somehow and I have no plan about any accents. And also, yeah, other languages like French and so on, they are not perfect. <laughs> There you go. Well, um, I don't speak German or else we'd be doing this interview in German, but uh, I do have a little helper. So let me let me uh, see if I can uh, can do. Here we go. Sorry, I'm not cool enough to speak in German because I went to an English school uh, in the United States. Here we go. Tut mir leid, dass ich nicht cool genug bin, um Deutsch zu sprechen, weil ich eine Englischschule in den Vereinigten Staaten besucht habe. There you go. Is that pretty good? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, we don't need to speak English or German or anything. All right. Well, hey, let's let's jump into this because uh, super excited um, to, to better understand what makes Stefan tick 
And uh, the reason why we're talking is uh, let's uh, at least uh, introduce you a little bit. So Stefan, he is a YouTube gliding star. In fact, uh, I don't know of anybody else that has more uh, video views on uh, YouTube or probably any kind of social media than Stefan does. I was taking a look uh, this morning and as of this morning, he has uh, his gliding videos have been viewed over 51 million times and he has 165,000 subscribers. So um, congratulations. That, 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 that's amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. But you also did great. Um, at least I think till one year ago, we were like the same at the same level. And at the beginning, you were a giant. You had so many um, subscribers and so many more views and so on. So um, I thought 100,000 subscribers at this level, we will meet somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and then I took the lead. <laughs> you did. And well, you've been you've been making yeah. amazing content. So, yeah, I, I'm just a little bit over 100,000 subscribers and I think I'm out of like 34 million views. But what's cool about that is the two of us combined, we are over. Um, I mean, we're close to 85 million views. And what's what's cool about that is is not 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 for us, but for the gliding community and in the world is uh, you know people are seeing gliders flying and and uh, uh, you're introducing to millions of people uh, you know the amazing sport of gliding. So uh, really cool stuff. So fun stuff. And I think uh, you were the first one who uh, reached such a wide audience. So there you are the the number one and wow. you also helped me a lot um to um push these videos because um you made this audience with these um million views and then um if a video with a similar topic is also picking up um the algorithm suggests other videos and so on so we help each other to grow i would say um, yeah, so yeah. every other creator youtuber and gliding youtuber is good for all of us because we push more these uh, this gliding video stuff on excellent and we're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, towards the end of this a little bit about making videos and how do you get seen but going back to i think really the pioneers um i i have to give a shout out to uh, matt um matt wright uh, is, yeah. is it baleka and uh he he inspired me and and he and i for a couple of years were, were neck and neck uh, making videos and, and he just uh, he made an amazing video so shout out to uh, to matt and uh, we miss you buddy and uh, uh, so uh, you were talking about content and uh, actually yours and my content are a little bit different so like for example one of my videos would be like why did my glider shrink over the winter time or you know <laughs> maybe if i complain a lot i can go faster uh, you know, yet you are doing these epic, you know, ridge or, or beach uh, flying things or you're flying, you know, old gliders. Um, so it's fun to see that each person has different type of content and a little bit different styles. And, th and that's what keeps it fresh and interesting. So it's fun. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's just jump right in. And first of all, let's get to know you a little bit better. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, you know, how old are you? You know, what do you do for yeah. work? Uh, do you work? Um, <laughs> do you just make videos? You know, do you have any hobbies outside of gliding? Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I'm now 29 years old. Um, I have, I think, about 2,300 gliding hours so far. Um, I started gliding with the age of 14, so that's the earliest um, time age where you can start here in Germany. 
And yeah, I experienced many different kinds of competitions, um, um, flew in many different countries already. Um, and that's what I try to capture also on the videos. Hi, it's Laura from episode 128, and you're listening to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Hang gliders are essentially weight shift controlled aircraft. And every aircraft is weight shift controls controlled to a degree. I mean, we all have to deal with weight and balances on regular aircraft for a reason. You put too much weight in the tail and you're not going to be able to put the nose down regardless of how hard you try. So the scale of hang gliders is a lot different in the sense that just our body weight being moved into different locations, either left, right, or pulling ourselves forward in front of the glider's center, center gravity or aft will allow us to bank or change the pitch of the glider. And that's essentially the controls of it. We're really only down to two axes there because the yaw, although there are some tricks you can use to get some kind of yaw out of the glider, it's pretty much non-existent because of the nature of the glider. And for simplicity's sake too, which is really the key characteristics of hang gliders. One of the more interesting engineering problems of simplicity, weight, and cost. It's amazing to see the craftsmanship and the ideas that have gone into some of these hang gliders throughout the years and how they've all kind of settled down to a relatively standard design, which is a delta wing uh, shaped wing mm -hmm. with ribs or battens, uh, aluminum or carbon battens that give it its wing shape and a dive recovery system to basically uh, keep the glider from uh, encountering a tumble. Of course, also some performance aspects uh, or some performance upgrades to them, such as variable geometry, which um, can get into later. But they've evolved in such a way that they are as simple as they are as necessary, because we always want that nice thing uh, on the glider. But there's that mm -hmm. distinction between uh, hang gliders and rigid wings, which um, are essentially hang gliders with D cells, carbon D cells, and they have no flex and all the controls are operated by um, spoiler ons. And it'd be really nice to have some spoiler ons on a hang glider, but then you got that much more complexity. You got five more minutes of setup time. You got another 10, you know, maybe five pounds mm -hmm. of weight that people just aren't going to want to carry. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, mm -hmm. it, it's a really interesting uh, progression to see the gliders and how they are managing to get such great performance out of them, relatively speaking. It's kind of hard to talk about performance with, you know, comparing hang gliders to sailplanes. I mean, they're just two absolutely different leagues. Is it just kind of variations on a theme or have there just been like major breakthroughs or it's, it's just sort of optimizing, you know, things on the edges over the last decade? I would say there have been some major breakthroughs in probably before the turn of the century. Um, the biggest one, and this was done relatively early on, actually was what we call the floating crossbar. So essentially, you've got two leading edges that are pushing the wings apart. And what is 
keeping them apart is another cross member between the two leading edges. And since the uh, there is a nose angle or the wings are swept back, uh, you can kind of make an a, uh, like a really wide A out of that. You can imagine something like that. And the bar going across that A is what we call the crossbar. Now that has mm-hmm. a uh, some f- ability to float or to shift left and right. So one of the leading edges can actually be further out or mm-hmm. uh, retracted somewhat. So there's some flex relative to the keel, which goes transverse to the direction of motion uh, or is parallel with the direction of motion relative roughly. Mm-hmm. So that allows the sail to flex and warp similar to like the right flyer. And it allows mm-hmm. the glider to be much more maneuverable than just moving your weight over and waiting for gravity to do the work. Mm-hmm. Right. That's probably one of the uh, major milestones of hang glider manufacturing. And I'm sure there's, uh, I know there are people that are much better experts on this subject, but I think that in, in conjunction with having a reliable dive recovery system, especially as the gliders got more and more robust and moving from 6061 aluminum to 7075 aluminum, just these, those are smaller iterations. Um, and I think hang gliders have gone through a lot of that because it's, it's a lot of trial and error. And not all these manufacturers are... Um, have a team of full-fledged engineers on them. And now they mostly do, but especially back then, it was a lot of trial and error by people that just had a great idea. Maybe touch on the dive recovery piece a little bit. You know, what, what what does that sort of look like or how does that work? So if you can imagine a stall in a regular airplane, the only reason why the aircraft does not continue to rotate over is because you have a horizontal stabilizer in the rear that's providing some resisting force when the aircraft tries to rotate about the the wings when you're uh, stalling the aircraft. And for a hang glider, because we don't have that, if we get ourselves into an aggressive enough stall where the inertia of the glider rotating, trying to recover, uh, overcomes the aerodynamic forces that our, our wing uh, without a tail is exerting to try and resist that rotation, it will continue to tumble. And that's when mm-hmm. gliders start to break. It's a large club. I don't know how many members there are, but it's measured in the hundreds. Uh, we have uh, a very large uh, training program and uh, we, uh, uh, they, they, they track these uh, statistics at the national level uh, at all the clubs in Fayence, consistently ranks number one club in uh, France. Uh, And it's not just measured by how many students uh, we train and how many certificates we have, but it's also, there's lots of variables in that equation and uh, cross-country soaring is one of them. Uh, They they rank points. And so you get a point for every cross-country kilometer flown and uh, you get points for different badges being issued. You get points for how many licenses you issue. And so all those things added together, Fayence ends up being number one as measured by uh, the French National Soaring Organization. Let's call it the French SSA. So a lot of your American listeners will understand who I'm talking about. 
But right. as far as the uh, airport, it's doing the conversion from metric to uh, uh, English. It's 226 meters, which is just shy of 750 feet, I think. Um, we're 45 minutes by car off of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, the, the Alps come all the way down to the sea in some places. Um, the first several, I'll say, I guess, 50 kilometers of mountains are referred to as the first waves because they uh, are long ridges, uh, which are softer than the harsh Alps of further north, kind of resembling the uh, Appalachians in the Western states. Uh, but rather than running from uh, northeast to southwest, it's due west and due east. And as far as uh, so soaring conditions, uh, we have everything. You just check all of the boxes. Uh, uh, Fiance's original claim to fame was the wave box. Uh, airspace is a lot tighter in Europe, and there aren't many places for people to climb uh, to get their 5,000 uh, meter gain in order to get the diamond badge. And uh, Fiance was one of those places that we can do it. We have a wave window directly above the airport, which I believe now goes up to flight level 235 or 23,500 feet. Nice. Uh, some of us now use it as a as a, as a launch pad. We uh, climb up in the window and then switch over to air traffic control to get a clearance out of the box horizontally so we can make a, a high-speed dive <laughs> to the north where the airspace <laughs> is much wider open. Wow. And uh, we could get some nice wave flights in. Is there a commercial flight school there on site? Uh, there, there is. It's... It's a hybrid is, I guess, the best way to describe it. Uh, it's first and foremost a club, but we have professional employees. I think there's like a half a dozen employees of the club that are salaried. Uh, and there's a couple of instructors that uh, are, are paid instructors and a whole lot of uh, uh, volunteers. Uh, so nice. the volunteers, of course, are just like uh, any other club. They're there when they can. They do what they can. Uh, but the professional uh, flight instructors are there. Uh, they take turns, of course. They don't work 365 days each, both of them. But uh, there's always going to be an instructor available on any given day out of the year, 365 days a year. Wow, nice. So given the proximity to the French Riviera and all that, I, I'd assume that you get some good convergent conditions that has to open up some interesting flight opportunities to go along with the wave flights, but what times are you typically are the juiciest for convergence? And what about the wave? Well, there's lots of different types of convergence. Uh, it, it's, it's again, it's one of those uh, reasons why the uh, French Alps are uh, so popular for people to come fly. And it's because there's just all the boxes are checked. Uh, yes, there is a convergence that comes off of the Mediterranean Sea. It is, of course, soarable, but it's not always a soarable, friendly convergence. Uh, there's, uh, when, when that convergence is, is uh, going well, there tends to be an inversion, a low-level inversion uh, on the Mediterranean side of the mountain. So you might have to wait until early afternoon in order for that convergence to really help you out. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, the soaring conditions just uh, on the other side of the mountain have been busting since uh, nine o'clock in the morning. So that first convergence doesn't really help us out that much if we're trying to get these monster flights in, uh, uh, high kilometer uh, flights. Uh, but the local pilots do get to 
uh, a lot of practice in that Mediterranean Sea generated convergence. The much, much stronger convergence is the one that runs uh, pretty much north south that separates the uh, Italian flatlands with the French highlands. Uh, when those two air masses collide, we have convergence going up into uh, 20,000 feet. And uh, oh, wow. we can't always soar that high again because of the airspace restrictions. But uh, you can really uh, push some high uh, cross-country speeds in that convergence. Yeah, I, I just have to say I, I, the huge advantage I have is, is basically having the wave literally over my head um, where I live. Um, so based off of that, I, what I want to do is essentially take, take advantage of, of the conditions that, that exist where I live, you know, and it's, I think it's all relative. You live on the East coast, you know, 500 kilometer flight is a, is maybe a big flight and, and, and that's all good. And I, I totally understand that, but I, I, what I try to do is compare this a lot to like surfing. You know, if you, if you live on the North shore of Hawaii, well, you're going to take advantage of what you have there, which are big waves and, 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 uh, the ability to, to, to surf that stuff. And, and very, very similar to that. I think, you know, what I'm able to do, given the, the fact that I have these weather conditions literally in my backyard, I, I just want to take advantage of that. And I've always been fascinated with wave. There's, there's a certain, um, mystery with it. It's, uh, it can get real nasty. Um, uh, a lot of people don't like it. They don't like the cold, the icing. So there are, there are a lot of negative things, but I see those as challenges that can be overcome. And I think given, um, given the proper preparation, um, I think it can be done very safely. Um, uh, you know, I've had several people have had bad things happen in a wave and those are, um, those are all pretty much pilot inducing. I think we learn from those mistakes and, uh, you know, my, my aviation background in the Navy and having been a safety officer, I, I think um, I, I think I'm pretty safe in my decision making and, and the preparation for these wave flights. So um, wave is just fascinating that, that the energy that's out there um, is is mind blowing, especially in the Sierra and and uh, the whole uh, basically the Great Basin and, and even the Rockies, you know, that the conditions that we have here are just just phenomenal or insane. And so. You know, I've done a lot of thermal stuff, obviously, also. And, you know, when you compare the two, um, thermaling, there's essentially a lot of work that goes into that flight. You know, the, the circling and, and uh, you know, speeds are much, much slower. Um, Certainly. So I, I think um, I think I just like I, I like the challenge of wave. Um, it can get like I said, you, it can be very uh, um, demanding. It's exhausting. Sometimes you get beat up. But it's it's can be very rewarding too, um, and you can get some big 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 flights out of that. And I think I think we've only scratched the surface with uh, with these flights. I think we can go much further, given the right equipment and uh, the right preparation, and and probably the most importantly that the right conditions and being there for that uh, for those conditions. Uh, unfortunately, my my airline job gets in the way of that. So um, uh, there there are many times where I'm watching, I'm sitting in China or, or in Sydney and I'm watching the weather out here, just grinding my teeth, wondering, you know, oh God. But, <laughs> yeah. When the FOMO is real, right? Yeah. And of it, you know, without my job, I wouldn't be doing this either. So my job is a means to the fun. I think I've got the greatest job in the world, but, um, uh, flying itself is fun, but it doesn't, uh, 
the, the real flying to me is, is getting in a glider and, uh, and dealing with the weather and seeing how far we can go. So. Excellent. Yeah. You mentioned equipment. Tell me about the ships you currently own and, uh, fly both in a uh, wave and thermals. Well, the, uh, the, there's a single ship right now, which is a, a duo discus. Um, it's a T model. Um, so it's got the turbo, but, um, when, uh, when I started flying this or actually previous to the, to the, uh, duo discus, I, I started these long distance flights in my old 1971 Kestrel 17. And, um, I equipped that with some big bottles. So I, I got my, actually my, my 2000 kilometer diploma with three, three turn points. I, I did get that in the, uh, in the Kestrel 17, which is very rewarding because I'd been flying that, uh, glider for a long time since probably I was 17 years old. I've been flying a Kestrel 17. And, and, and I think the thing that was really neat, um, was to basically allow everyone to see that you don't need, you know, you don't need a half a million dollar airplane to go do this stuff. And, um, definitely. And, and to flying a glider that was, you know, I don't know, 15, $17,000 glider that was made in 1971 and, and flying for flying over 2000 kilometers. Um, that was very, very rewarding, um, to me. So, um, and that's not to put anything down that, uh, any flights that have been done in, in, in the super glass ships, because, um, that's going to be in the future with me. So, um, <laughs> but I, I think, I think I right currently I'm flying a duo discus. Um, and as I was saying, the duo discus was equipped with a motor. So what we did was we pulled the engine out of this, uh, duo discus cause we needed the key with the wave flying long distance wave flying it's battery and oxygen. Um, and obviously, mm -hmm. obviously warmth, but equipment wise, it's, it's battery and oxygen. So the gentleman I was flying with Hugh Bennett, he was an older gentleman. He had the duo discus and uh, he wanted to do some of these flights with me. And I, you know, he was already in his, uh, late seventies, early, uh, maybe 80. Um, yeah, late seventies actually. And so, um, he approached me, wanted to do some of these flights and he's an adventurous type, had a sailing background. Um, and so I said, okay, if you want to do this, um, pull the motor out of the uh, duo discus, fill as much oxygen capacity in the back of that, in that engine bay as you can. And we need to put, get as much, um, battery juice as we can in the, uh, in the glider. So, uh, bottom line, we have over, you know, it's, uh, over a hundred uh, square, uh, cubic feet of oxygen. Um, <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, so we have, so, so oxygen, um, the, the reason why I say oxygen is so important, you don't want to get into a 10, 11, 12 hour situation and you're running low, then you've, you know, and, and you still have a lot of time to go. And cause unsafe decisions can be made at that point, especially when you, um, when you're really determined to try to get extra miles or, or achieve that goal or, or record. So, um, always overdo it with the oxygen, overdo it with the battery. So, um, we started doing these long, these flights. I think the first flight with him was 1200 kilometers and it was kind of a test flight and he felt like a million bucks. And, uh, so we kept stretching that further and further. And then I started thinking about doing some, some records with him, some three turn point and straight out records. Um, and so we started doing that up and down the Sierra. Um, and so we had a 2000 kilometer flight, three turn point, uh, record. Then we had a free distance over 2000 kilometers. Then we did a, um, I think I did an OLC, you know, actually in the Kestrel, I did a, 
another 2000 kilometer flight um, before. Yeah, I saw it. So, so I, I keep forgetting about what this happened a while back. So um, it's hard to remember. I don't remember these numbers, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's all about kind of having fun and, and learn, getting the, you know, the experience and moving on. But um, so we stretched all those distances further. And then my, my ultimate goal, my passion, my real passion, it's not necessarily going up and down the Sierras, but going, it's going downwind, kind of following in the footsteps of um, Mike Kerner and, um, and Henry Coombs. And, and, and I think we have the ability to make some uh, super long downwind flights. And we'll talk about that here in a bit, I think. I started my journey in aviation about three years ago through gliding. But my love for aviation first came about 10 years ago when I flew to the Scilly Isles on a Twin Otter. And in the Twin Otter, you can see right into the cockpit and there were two female pilots in the front, which is what I believe sparked my love for aviation. I mean, I previously had tried loads of different sports such as horse riding, power boating, mountain biking and even rally driving. And simply because of how expensive they were. Um, I couldn't pursue on with them and partly my whole love for a sport was aviation so that's partly why I wanted to go with aviation was because I that's knew what I would always wanted to do since I was little and I think that's partly what my parents knew what I wanted to do as well because no matter what I was doing I was always looking at the sky for an airplane because that's what honestly it's what I think I've always wanted to do and I'm doing right now so I am a 15-year-old bronze glider pilot at two different clubs and I have two of my silver legs almost complete and I am flying gliders simply because of how cheap they are. And for example, a glider costs about £10 an hour, whereas a powered aircraft here in the UK is about 10 times that price. That is actually how I found uh, soaring myself. I was looking for something more affordable. Powered is very expensive. And uh, searched around and have found that gliders was yeah much more, much more affordable. So can you tell us about where you fly? You mentioned two clubs, but I guess the main club you fly, or both of them for that matter, um, the soaring opportunities there, how long your soaring is, what's the terrain like, any of that you'd like to tell us? So currently I'm based here in the UK and I fly from two different clubs, which are two very different clubs in the way we have to land fly and soar and so my home club is Oxford Gliding Club which is right next to Oxford about an hour and a half away from London and it is a massive flatland site it is huge we can get up to 2,000 feet plus off the winch launch on a good day it relies primarily on thermal lift and very rarely we've even had wave lift around there. And I've, I've had one wave flight there in the three years I've been there. And I first started off at Bicester, which is literally 10 kilometres to the east of Oxford, because Bicester Gliding Club sadly had to close because they lost the east on the, on the airfield. I moved to Oxford Gliding Club and it isn't very far away from where I live. So that that's partly the convenience of it. And it is a really nice club. There's loads of gliders. And moving on to my second club, which is Midland Gliding Club, which is based up in Shropshire. It is situated right next to the border of Wales, and it sits about 700 feet above the valley. And in a directly westerly wind, we can soar about a 15 kilometre long ridge, which is really nice. I've never personally had a ridge day yet, 
because it's a, it only works in a westerly and westerly winds sort of gusting 20 knots is bang on perfect for gliders but there'd be paragliders riding along this ridge at 10 knots and we need 20 knots um <laughs> but unfortunately i haven't experienced any ridge flying yet but i've had some thermic flights from there and quite regularly they do actually get quite a lot of wave lift up to 10,000 feet plus oh, but wow. you've got to be in the right spot at the right time to get in it and i haven't actually experienced any sort of wave flying yet but i'm really looking forward to flying in wave and experience that new world of soaring in the winter time during going up to heights airliners can fly at which i think is pretty epic and typically here in the UK, our thermic soaring season will last around seven to eight months, depending on what the weather's doing and what cold and warm fronts are coming through. But usually it lasts typically seven to eight months. I mean, in November, I had a 20 minute flight relying on thermal lift, which I think was shocking to everyone because we didn't, wasn't really expecting it to catch that thermal, yeah. which was really <laughs> epic. But using other sources of lift, so wave and ridge, we can stay up all year round and people have known to do their silver duration of five hours on a ridge during the winter oh, nice. whereas i had to do my five hours primarily on thermal lift right <laughs> the winch launch now is that both clubs uh yeah so primarily at both clubs we are winch launch only but 10 minutes up the road from oxford there is an aerotoad club called banbury gliding club and their aerotoads there are really cheap and I did my aerotoad conversion there and it cost about £80 in total and I went solo on about my fifth toe because I'd done some previously and primarily it's winch launch at both clubs but Midland Gliding Club also has a motor glider but one of the things that makes Midland Gliding Club so special is it is actually one of the two sites in the world that do bungee launching which I think for some is a very unheard of method <laughs> essentially yeah. You're a massive, you're being catapulted off the side of this hill and you sort of start off rolling and then this massive elastic band pings you into the air and you just fly along the ridge until you get some altitude. And that's what makes Midland Gliding Club where it is today because of its bungee launching capabilities. All right. So so let's get straight into why we have both of you on this podcast. So the two of you completed recently a very cool soaring safari. Uh, that took you some very spectacular areas in, uh, I understand, I think in five states uh, in the Western US, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, Arizona. But before we get into the trip, um, you know, what for the listeners who don't know what that is, what is a soaring safari? Yeah, that's a great question. What is a soaring safari? We, we'd never done one before. So um, let's just start at the at the beginning of this thing. Seven plus years ago, uh, our club, the Utah Soaring Association, was crazy enough to agree to let's uh, refurbish an old 1960s winch, glider winch. And uh, we then, over a period of about a year, uh, Dan and myself, we each have hundreds of hours in this process. We refurbished this glider winch. And what a glider winch is, is it allows you to launch a full-size glider into the air, thousands of feet up above the runway with a trailer-based giant engine that has a giant reel of thousands of feet of rope and it 
pulls it in really quickly and it launches us up so we don't have to follow behind an airplane. So Dan and I worked on this and during that process, kind of daydreaming, hey, it'd be fun if we were to take this on a safari someday. And uh, early this year, I contacted Dan and said, Dan, uh, hey, you want to go on a soaring safari for a couple of weeks? And Dan's so cool. He's just like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so it, it was just the two of us with four ground crew and a couple of RVs. And we decided to do a, a two-week soaring safari, and uh, this is, that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, that is awesome. I mean, most people probably, if they heard the term soaring safari, they thought, you know, people go and um, with their motor gliders because I think that's the most convenient way to do it. Or, you know, some people take a tow plane and a tow pilot. But I'm not sure if anyone has ever done this with a winch. <laughs> so so yeah. I'm, I'm really... Uh, you know, I'm really excited to hear about how that how that all worked. So yeah, so let's just give a little bit more description. So really quickly, it, it was about an 1800 mile loop across these five states, and we'll talk about the the legs. But our goal here was we were going to launch from each location and then soar to the next, and then launch from the next one with the winch. And so, you know that that was the goal, and we accomplished it quite a bit there there were a couple of little snags and anomalies that we'll talk about but uh it was mainly you know soar from place to place and then have the ground crew meet up with us and do it again the next day right so it's basically going from one place to the next place and then launch there the next day and try and uh, get to the next place and so forth yep yeah yeah uh what kind of reception did you get with the winch when you when you turned up at these airports i mean i'm sure that some of these airport managers they've probably never seen a winch before <laughs> you know they, they probably didn't even know what it was what do you think dan i think they were very receptive they were very interested we had everybody every place we went somebody came out to watch us launch so it was <laughs> they were interested in it we had no problems with uh, with any of the locations to, to let us launch with the glider that is great. Did, did, did people feel this was a, a, a disruption to them at all? Or, uh, or did, how did they announce it to other pilots, to other traffic? I mean, did you guys did you have to, to, to close the runway or uh, to set the winch up? Or how did, how did that work? So I'll let Dan answer part of that. But let me just say, I did my homework beforehand. And even though we ended up landing at a couple of airports we were not planning on flying at, um, I had contacted all the airport managers way before, months in advance. And they told them, sent them videos, explained our process, and they were all excited for us to come. And uh, there were multiple airports that we never ended up visiting because we just flew past them uh, Uh to make up time. And uh, so just a real valid reception. And then one last thing with that is you said when we arrived, um, nobody saw us when we arrived, (laughs) Dan, right? Because because we were arriving between 10 o'clock at night and midnight, the caravan. Uh, Dan and I had landed hours before, but uh, nobody saw the caravan arrive to the airport because it was so late at night. (laughs) So... Wow. So who was who was doing the caravanning? I mean, who was your crew? That was mostly um, Bruno set up the whole crew. It was his sister, his nephew, his son, and his son's friend. Wow. Wow. And so they were all they were all willing participants in this. That's, uh, that's awesome. I mean, you, you can't do this on your own. So how many? How many? You had you had two RVs, right? And then what else did you did you slug around? Go for it, Dan. We had um, Bruno had an RV and he towed one of the glider trailers. Uh, Bruno's truck towed um, the winch. My truck towed a fifth wheel camper and an SUV towed the other glider trailer. Wow. So you, you had both trailers with you in case of a land out, yeah? 
Yeah, we're we're crazy, but we're not stupid. We're gonna bring trailers just in case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you you basically had oh, but it, you could you could uh, have the trailers behind one one was behind the RV and the other one was behind the winch. So you only had two. No, one was no. behind the SUV and one was behind the motorhome. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a uh, it's quite a logistical undertaking. So, uh, how long have you been planning this? I've been daydreaming about it for. A um, couple of years, but I start, started getting serious last year when I decided not to host the 2022 Nephi event and because I wanted to do this instead. David, so we spoke last week about the day of your late de- lake landing in, in great detail, um, kind of debriefing the event, debriefing the day, figuring out what exactly went on. And uh, for, for those listeners that are not familiar with the Sierra Nevada, um, Lake Tahoe, Truckee area, just kind of give you guys a brief overview of that, that soaring site. So Truckee is a beautiful airport located um, right outside of the town of Truckee um, at 62, or 6,000 feet um, field elevation um, in Northern California. Um, and a, a few miles south of the airport is Lake Tahoe. So it's a alpine lake, one of the biggest lakes in California, um, 12 miles north to south, sorry, 22 miles north to south, 12 miles east to west, um, and surrounded by eight and 9,000 foot peaks, um, right up against the water, essentially. So um, small watershed, um, a bull, essentially, that surrounds that lake. Um, And it offers spectacular soaring, spectacular views, but getting back into Truckee at the end of the day, being next to um, essentially a bowl to the south of it, and then high mountains on all other sides um, presents certain challenges. So obviously David will discuss um, some of those challenges he met that day. Um, but yes, Truckee is a fantastic site, but definitely more on on the advanced side of things. So David, to finish up this question, one thing I do recall you mentioning was that th- that day was already the worst day of soaring you had, even before you landed in the lake. Obviously the day didn't end how you would have liked it, but what were the other factors before taking off and well in the air that led to a less than desired outcome? Yeah. Um, so when I arrived in Truckee days beforehand, um, I was actually shocked to find the temperatures at Truckee to be um, not summer-like. Uh, I think the Friday and Saturday that I before flying, um, I, I landed in the water on Sunday. Um, so Friday and Saturday uh, were highs of um, – mid forties during the day and, um, as low as 30. And I think on Saturday night, it was like 27 degrees, the low during the night. I wasn't really prepared for, um, winter conditions in the middle of July. Normally the Truckee contest is a month later and the times that I've been up here it is, you uh, mean the middle of June, right? Yeah. The middle of June. And so when I've been to Truckee, uh, the temperatures during the day are are very warm, uh, 80 to 90 degrees, and then at night they're very pleasant at getting down to 40, so camping is, is, a, is a lot of fun. And so just to be at 40 degrees all day, uh, I'm a very uh, small guy. I get cold very easily, um, and so I was just been cold just hanging out at, at Truckee waiting for the, the contest. And so on Sunday, the day we flew, it was um, warmer. It was 60 degrees about the time of the launch, but still considerably colder than I'm normally used to. And so I got 
uh, the day before I flew for about an hour and, um, my feet got very cold. So I, I landed and immediately went to the store and bought some wool socks, hoping that would address some of the, the issues. And so I wore my normal flight gear that I have, um, even, um, gear that had kept me warm and comfortable in flight, even at altitudes up to 17,000, 17,005. And, um, and so I, I didn't really think much of it. And, um, I took off and I went into, uh, I start, went through the start gate. Uh, the task for the day was to go from basically Truckee down to Mono Lake. Um, there was two turn points that were west of Mono Lake and then a little bit east of Mono Lake and then back home. And so what's the distance on that? It's about a 500 K task. Uh, yeah, I would say it's shy, maybe 400, 450, uh, kilometer task for that day. Yeah. And regardless of the exact distance, Truckee is just on when it, when the conditions permit the, the contest yeah. has a reputation of doing uh pretty sizable tasks for. Yeah. I, I thought the task was a moderate medium length and it seemed appropriate for the, the day, um, when leaving through the start gate. And so, um, Leaving through the start gate, I went through on the west side of the uh, of the lake, which is not the typical exit um, out of Truckee, but the, the clouds were there, and um, I had plenty of height coming out of the start gate. And I actually got low over South Tahoe, very close to making the decision to have to land at the airport there, but I did find lift and eventually climb out and got out to the bowl. And so I made my way south to Mono Lake, and... Cloud bases uh, towards the lake were around 15,000 feet MSL, and then they were rapidly, well, not rapidly, but they were climbing uh, probably as high as 17, 17 and a half around Mono Lake, uh, which is to be expected for that area. But one of the things that was occurring is that my vent on my glider does not close all the way. And so if I'm getting cold, I really have no way of keeping out the very cold air outside. And so around Mono Lake, I checked the outside air temperature of the air and it was 15 degrees Fahrenheit. And so I was pumping in anywhere from 15 to 21 degree uh, Fahrenheit air into my cockpit for, uh, I don't know, an hour and a half on my way uh, south to Mono Lake. And so around Mono Lake, I became um, very cold, noticeably cold. And so as I was made my way north, one of the things I also found out was my P-tube, uh, which doesn't completely drain with the way it's set up, froze. And so I found that out when my catheter started filling up like a water balloon. And I had to fly like that, concerned that at some point the water balloon was going to come off and fling pressurized urine through the cockpit. And so I was kind of worried about my parachute getting dirty, to put, say Eventually, I did get low enough. It warmed up um, when I got around Topaz Lake that I was able to relieve the pressure, um, pun intended, and get my pants closed back up. And that got a little bit resolved. But I had been cold the entirety of the time. And so around Lake Topaz, which is, um, I, what would you say, like 100 miles uh, or 60 miles from? Probably, yeah, 60 or so from Truckee. I needed to make a decision and for um, there's kind of a, a common way to get back in the Truckee is to take this mountain ridge just north of the lake, which is called the Pine Nuts. 
and you take that and you're usually confined your last and that's being on the sorry on the east side of the lake right on the east side of uh reno and carson city yeah. or sorry reno carson city um and uh minden valley that bit. yeah so you might have heard the pine nuts if you know about people flying out of minden and so the pine nuts are usually like a great place to uh, get your last climb you can get up to sixteen thousand feet 17,000 feet and make your final glide in with very comfortable over the lake um, and, and to get home. But the for this day, the pine nuts didn't look like the clouds were actually high enough to do that. Barbara, thanks so much for joining me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Chuck, again for inviting me. Um, it's it's always great to chat about the episodes that, uh, that you already made, uh, about future plans and anything i always enjoy it and it's really great thank you (laughs) well i think we're going to be hearing from you again very soon hopefully (laughs) if you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast we would love to hear from you if you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and chuck will get in touch with you We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.